Brannon here with a quick show note. There is no way to get around the explicit language in this episode. Our guest is a legendary provocateur, so uh, we won't be beeping anything. So deal with it. And I'm Anson Mount. And uh, we've tried to play this game a couple of times before. It's never made it into the show because it never works. <laughs> but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try it again. Uh, it's called uh, Guess Who's Coming to the Podcast. Okay. All okay. right. I'm All excited. Right. I'm very excited. You've been, you've been uh, talking about this for a okay. while. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to play you uh, a little bit of audio. Okay. Uh, and uh, yeah, see if you can place it. Is Anson on this as well? No, he's not. Uh, ho, 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 ho. I'm sorry. Was that I a... don't get to interview him and see if he's, you know, his character has ever had to tangle with the spot mix. Oh, man. No. <laughs> I'll ask him. I will ask him. Any ideas? Uh, n- there's something to the voice that's sounding familiar. Um,. Well, he's a he's a. You know, I'll give you a couple of uh, clues. He's a huge Trek fan. That probably that won't mean anything to you because nobody knows that. Okay. But have you had to deal with the Spotniks before? The Spotniks. The Spotniks. Yeah. Has that been a, an issue? Uh, have you come up against? Has your character or has anyone come up against the Spotniks? No, I don't believe so. Never heard of the Spotniks. I don't believe I have. All right then. They were the second most popular guitar instrumental band in Europe pre-Beatles. Really? The Shadows were the big one. How many years were they they together? They may still be together. (laughs) I just checked their Wikipedia, and the Spotniks were active from 1958 to 2019, which about the same year I did this interview. And they, they, they were definitely better dressed than the Shadows or the Ventures, or Dick Dale, or even Manor, well, Manor Astro Man owes them a huge debt. They, they, they had a big hit over there, including England, with a twangy reverb guitar cover of Orange Blossom Special. What? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, you, you have homework to do. Well, maybe you should ask him if he's, uh, you know, if they're going to finally uh, have their showdown with the Spotniks and see how confused he gets before you reveal who the Spotniks really are. I wonder if you'd pretend like it was part of Star Trek that he didn't know. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm asking you to do. Yeah, to see if you can prank him on it. That is actually what I was worried about. <laughs> I was like, oh my god, is Brandon going to to pull one over on me and make me feel like an idiot in front of my fan base? But um, no, I, I'm ready to take a stab at this. Take a stab. Is that is that Shello Biafro? Yeah! <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Brandon, that's amazing! How did you get that? How did you get this interview? I don't remember. It was a while ago. I think I just... <laughs> I think I just sent, you know, there was an info, you know, whatever, dot, whatever, at 
alternative tentacles through his record label and just told him that you know that we wanted to that I was a big fan and wanted to interview him and I think I and I kind of messed up because I you know I'm sure you checked out the site and it was like the well pod with Anson Mount and Brandon Edge and so he thought you were going to be there oh. so he had dug through his um this he probably has one of the biggest vinyl collections I've ever seen in my life his whole house is nothing but vinyl collections and he had gone through and found uh sort of like 50s early 60s I don't know why uh sort of sci-fi themed rock groups you know <laughs> that he wanted to test your knowledge <laughs> oh no I know and then I felt bad because then he said when I when we, the interview first started and I was like oh it's not here he was like I could tell he was like okay <laughs> <laughs> oh man I am honored Jello uh, when you when you hear this hopefully you'll hear this I, that's wow well that was um uh, I don't know if you can tell already, but, uh, you know, trying to... I knew this was going to happen because I've heard a lot of interviews with Jello Biafra over the years. I was a little intimidated to try to interview him. And it was fine. I mean, put it this way, it's easy to get him talking. Um, and it's also very hard to get a, a question in, edgewise. <laughs> but he is just a font of information he it is to um, this is just a warning to the listeners just hang on because jello's going to start talking and i'm going to try to you know do what i can through editing to you know keep this story nice and segmented and bite-sized pieces but you're about to meet a very very interesting personality with a phenomenal forest gumpish history behind him yes that's a good way of putting it a very a very long colorful history from a very colorful character. And a great artist. And a great artist. So the interview hadn't really even started, and he was already giving me music history lessons and homework, which is fitting, because I learned a lot from Jello as a teenager. But before I could learn anything, I had to discover him. And back then, the best way to find stuff not being played on local radio was to visit the record store. Remember those? In Rome, Georgia, there was a Turtle Records, and I'd go in after school and browse the cassettes. You know, not as cool as vinyl, I know, but I was a victim of the times, technologically. And I was mostly seeing a bunch of the usual pop stuff, boy bands, love songs, so many love songs, all variants of boy meets girl, boy loses girl. I'm like, how much of this stuff do we need when I found a tape by a band called the Dead Kennedys, and I was like, whoa, that's provocative. An album called Give Me Convenience or Give Me Death. All right, that's funny. I read the song titles, A Child and His Lawnmower, California Uber Alice, Holiday Inn Cambodia, in spelled with two N's, and Too Drunk to Fuck. Okay, I needed this album in my life. So I go home, laid on my bed, put on the headphones, and unfolded this comically extensive liner notes, like an accordion. It just kept going and unfolding and unfolding. Really small type. I had never seen this many lyrics on the inside of an album. I remember thinking, whoa, they have a lot to say. I read along, and the content of that album changed me instantly. I had never heard music this confrontational, this convicted, and this smart. 
It was full of little history lessons complete with names and dates, references to art, politically hyper-aware. And at the center of it was this odd but charming voice delivering lightning-fast observations through a fierce but almost effeminate quiver. The voice belonged to Jello Biafra, one of the most distinct voices in rock history and a folk hero of mine. So it was a thrill beyond words to have a chance to ask him personally, where did your voice come from? Even in school, even the way I talk, it was like, ooh, it's weird voice. Mm-hmm. But then I think primarily thanks to Peter Ivers, the best part is how weird his music was, especially an album called Terminal Love. And so I put it on when I'm listening before I buy a dear old trade of tape and records, two blocks from my high school, where I had slowly but surely explored every single record that looked interesting in the store because I was fed up with bad radio. Anyway, but that Ivers album, I listened to it, and like Sparks before him, I thought it was the absolute worst record I had ever heard in my life. And he had this really nasal voice that he would just get under your skin with. <laughs> kind of intentionally. Every time you attack your heart, your heart will attack you. Every time you attack your heart, your heart will attack you. And then it got a rave review in the college papers, so I picked up a cheapy copy at another store thinking I could sell it to trade a tape. And that might buy me another dozen 10 cent records or something. But uh, I was thinking big. But then I put it on again, figured just in case I better listen to it again. Wow, there's something about this record that says maybe I shouldn't get rid of it after all. But, 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 and then it just grew on me and grew on me and grew on me. What I learned from Peter Ivers is even if you've got a weird voice or something, that can be a hell of a weapon. Mm. The best thing a singer can have, even if they have the range of Lou Reed or something, is to have a voice where the minute you open your mouth, everybody knows who it is. Mm-hmm. But you, somehow you knew that you had that? Or when did you... Oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, I also was really good with Brian Ferry, too. <laughs> so we had a real good laugh at our hippie pothead days, looking at him in his dinner jacket and stuff, and him singing, You are my sunshine. May you be sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. (laughs) 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 My mother finally said, He's singing all wrong. You're supposed to sing from your diaphragm. (laughs) I guess it was with with Fairy, you know, and uh, David Surkamp, a super freaky high pitched singer from a band called Pavlov's Dog. You know, I learned that a vibrato can be a really good thing, and I had it anyway, so why not grow it? Where I can do both the diaphragm one involuntarily and the high one, you know, the Brian Ferry one, the other way. And to the point where it was a gag, just to see if it would help the song, when we were recording Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables, the first Dead Kennedys album in 1980, it opens with a song called Kill the Poor. 
Yeah, yeah, efficiency is progress is ours once more. Now that we have the neutron bomb, it's nice and quick and clean and get things done. I can finally hit that easy too. <laughs> that was struggle in the studio until I try to channel Fergal Sharky of the undertones and then I hit it. Efficiency and progress is ours once more. Now that we have the neutron bomb. They also were talking about the neutron bomb, which Jimmy Carter was proposing building and stuff. The idea being it was a nuclear kind of a bomb, radiation, everything, but it would only kill people but leave the property alone. Why should I be writing yet another boohoo anti-nuke song about the nuclear about the neutron bomb mm-hmm. when I could write a pro-neutron bomb song from the point of view of the Pentagon mm-hmm. and more to the point corporations and stuff and that was what Kill the Poor was but let's see what happens we got one more track open on the 24 track tape what happens if I do Brian Ferry singing Kill the Poor you know because of the guy in the dinner jacket that's kind of who's talking in this song anyway we almost used it. And then finally decided the real vocal that you know is more effective and decided to use that instead. But anyway, you need to do these things from time to time. I mean, once I was at a karaoke bar and picked Delilah by Tom Jones as a gag. And the more I made fun of Tom Jones, the more I could sing like Tom Jones. Mm -hmm. Why, 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 Delilah? Jello's head is cramped with encyclopedic knowledge of music. Even a brief convo with him was teaching me things I never knew. Like, I didn't know about Peter Ivers or that he wrote the song from Eraserhead. Yeah, that one. It takes most people a little bit of time to recall the details, but Jello's knowledge is always at arm's reach. But what set Dead Kennedys apart was not Jello's knowledge of music, it was his obsession and encyclopedic knowledge of all things political. This all started back in Colorado, where he grew up as Eric Boucher, where he was politically radicalized by his parents. My mother, who's 91 now, still has the house and still has the wherewithal to run it all and run her own life for the most part, even after a stroke that she wasn't expected to bounce back from. But they underestimated her. (laughs) She's kind of like a 91-year-old Elizabeth Warren who hates Trump more than anyone I know. Wow. More than anyone I know. I can't stand that man. I can't listen to that man. That man is this. That man is that. It sounds like you got some of the, the, you run on some of the same fuel as your mom. I would say so. Mm -hmm. I would say so. I mean, you know, it was a state of siege growing up, but uh, we, we grew closer once I moved away. I do have to thank them for this though, is that, um, 
when we first got a TV, I, and then I finally started watching a little bit of cartoon shows late in the afternoon before dinner, and then the news would come on, and I would just keep watching it with equal fascination, which also meant that, you know, I had imitations of Chad Huntley and David Brinkley and could do my own two-guy newscast and stuff. But more importantly, you know, I was a news hound from the get-go, even at age five, you know, seeing Oswald get shot live in the living room, Berlin Wall go up, and the uncensored, like, unlike now, bloody footage of soldiers who were wounded in Vietnam and things like that. And instead of changing the channel like most parents would do or never going there, my parents would leave it on and discuss it with the kids. You know, they wanted intelligent kids, so why not just treat them as intelligent people from the get-go? And then maybe it was the famous, infamous Edmund Pettus Bridge March where John Lewis was so badly beaten up. I don't know. But I do remember seeing footage, and it wasn't the first I'd seen, you know, of cops beating up so-called Negroes, dogs, hoses, and whatnot, which sounds an awful lot like Selma. And my mother just said, I just don't understand why anybody could do that to somebody just because of the color of their skin. And that penetrated like, yeah, Mm -hmm. you can't hate somebody because of the color of their skin. That's terrible. And so I I had pretty strong opinions on things like racism and uh, Vietnam and corruption and, of course, being Coloradoans, although she was originally from Michigan, but she was a Coloradoan by then, who hiked, and they were rock climbers. I never took that up. But, mm. um, you know, they, it wasn't called environmentalism yet, but conservation is, is very strong in our household. Mm-hmm. And then when a regent at the University of Colorado where a lot of anti-war stuff was going on, good place to be for that, too, as well as the hordes of hippies descending on the town back when hippies were dangerous and fun um, was, Oh, don't go to the Hill. That was a college area of the shops and stuff. You know, there's so many hippies. There's some of them aren't, some of them are bad people, blah, blah, blah. Okay. I'm going to go there on the way home from school from now on. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Once you consider Jello's upbringing, being a true child of the turbulent sixties. And you think of that kid who was only five years old while he was watching Oswald get shot live on TV, who witnessed in real time the death of Camelot, when you consider all those things, the name of the band he eventually forms stops sounding like just a shock tactic and starts sounding like what it is, a protest. And this point is frequently missed by a lot of folks, but punk music was protest music of the late 70s and 80s. But whereas hippie and folksy protest was about peace and love, The next generation, the punk generation, saw those people sell out or saw that peace and love were not effective and decided they needed to get loud. They needed to get confrontational. Jello grew up while America was doing a very painful autopsy on the American dream. The idealism of the 60s was gone. The 70s were looking even worse. And the protest movement was either co-opted by Madison Avenue or its leaders had sold out and become Madison Avenue. Jello was looking for something different, something new. And this is where his music fanaticism changed the course of his life, the same way his music changed mine, by digging through albums at his local record store. 
and I was finding the records for like a quarter or 50 cents at Trader Tape and other stores. And, oh, that's a great song. Now I can hear the whole album, things like that. And then I finally, I had to open the Pandora's box and start buying seven inches and singles or I'd never get to keep up with all this cool punk stuff. And this was the best music I'd ever heard. And this was my generation. I wasn't born too late. I was born at the perfect time. But then I'm at the original Wax Track store in Denver. They not only were selling the punk singles, they had all these older singles for sale, like 50 cents, quarter, whatever. Oh, my God. The Moonrakers, the best garage band on the radio in the 65. Another one, another one, another one. Four Moonrakers. Cool. The Witch by the Rattles. I heard that song twice on the radio as a kid and loved it so much I never forgot it. And now I get to listen to it again. And so then I started looking for so-called 60s punk. Anything with voodoo or murder in the title or just some kind of vibe, I'd pick them up. Your knowledge of, of music history is just in your recall kind of amazing i have i have little things like that i can remember a lot of especially music i like and white collar crime <laughs> you know when reagan began putting all these unindicted water <laughs> criminals into his cabinet i remember that one. Oh, i remember that one too oh robert gates was number two to william casey when they were running the contra drug scam that gave us a crack epidemic and obama is letting him stay secretary of defense the experience of trying to talk to jello is the same as listening to his music it's like having a fire hose go off in your face as always jello is getting a little ahead of himself here so back in 1971 jello is in high school so he's a politically well-educated, very opinionated kid, obsessed with music. And he always had a bit of a drama bug. Mm-hmm. And so being a ham, being an actor, and being unable to resist imitating my teachers and President Nixon and Howard Cosell and even classmates and stuff, I always kind of had a flair for that which also fed in later when, you know, I was no good with instruments and stuff, but there was still this Walter Mitty Cinderella ambition going on even before punk, you know, maybe I could sing. Plus I'd be good at that anyway. I got moves and stuff. I know I do. (laughs) So about a year and a half, I delivered pizzas in Boulder, Colorado for Heavy Eddie's Pizza. And all over town, I would drive and start playing around with my throat you know, just thinking, uh, you know, I've, I, I've spent all this time imitating people I either don't like or just like to make fun of. What would happen if I tried imitating stuff I did like? And so I got Eric Burden down. I got Iggy down, Sky Saxon down. Rocky Erickson was a little hard, but uh, even had Robert Plant down until I burned up too much of my throat smoking weed back then because this was the tail end of my hippie days before punk and sometimes i got tipped with weed and was all the happier he speaks of being happy here but i know from previous interviews jello went through a major depression around this time so the weed was probably an attempt to self-medicate what he needed was a character he could make his own a starring vehicle he could use for self-expression something to allow him to live out a childhood fantasy Whereas most kids might want to become Batman or Superman, Jello always empathized with the villains. Well, how else could I become the Riddler? I think having a really evil sense of humor 
and identifying with villains more than superheroes and heroes from the time Batman came on TV, maybe earlier. And, you know, when other kids in third grade were saying, when I grow up, I want to be a fireman. I want to be a policeman, a baseball player. I want to be a nurse. I want to be the penguin. I want to be the Riddler. Those are my role models, and I think they're cool. The only other thing I want to do even more than that was be in some kind of cool band. So uh, I'm very grateful that punk opened the opportunity for a uh, theoretical no talent like me to actually get on stage and be me. And suddenly there was room for all us crazy people and creative people again. But basically with my own, own thing, um, I mean, so many different influences have gone into the music and the lyrics and whatnot. You know, I, <clears throat> I, I liked Alice Cooper early on. That was the first rock artist I ever heard in eighth grade where I really dug the words too, man. <laughs> you know, I wasn't much of a Dylan guy or anything and uh, definitely not an Abbey Road person or something. I like the heavy stuff. And then of all things, a sitter for me and my sister mentioned Alice Cooper and why he thought I might like Alice Cooper. And then I went and got the killer album on a hunch and then there was no stopping me. I mean, basically, there's the graphic horror of Alice Cooper made political. And that was a conscious decision early on. Hmm. What, about, what about that kind of graphic horror but only about real monsters and not fictional ones. And I read Dead Babies for a speech class as a poem, and the teacher liked it. Oh. And he was a fundamentalist Christian from Oxford, Mississippi, but uh, he was a tolerant fundamentalist Christian who liked horror. And so, you know, it turned out instead of being like the, the bigots we think of now with fundamentalists, he was very encouraging to me. And, you know, he may, I think he was the best teacher I ever had. He was also director in a lot of the plays I acted in, too. And, you know, and, and the plays were not like, um, you know, Werewolf Goes to the Prom and stuff like that for teens. It was the real stuff. And he rode the actors like a real director would, putting us up against the whole town and stuff. I think even that cool and supportive fundamentalist teacher of his would have been surprised to see Jello evolve into the enfant terrible about 10 years later on stage, singing a song about how to become a pop star while not wearing any pants. I mean, totally naked from the waist down. But there's just one problem. Is my cock big enough? Is my brain small enough for you to make me a star? Give me a toot, I'll sell you my soul. Pull my strings and I'll go far. This uncensored video is on YouTube, by the way, amongst hundreds of others where you can catch a glimpse of his unique performance style, which consists of manic pantomiming of the song's story arc at 300 miles an hour, flashing a joker-like demonic grin. He, he is a dynamo on stage. And that energy seems to come from some strange admixture of anger and joy. Don't forget humor yeah. that keeps it all together is I always had a pretty sick, twisted sense of humor. 
when the humor comes in, even if it's my twisted humor, even if something's supposed to be all roll, all grim or what, or angry or whatever else, I'm dancing around my writing area with glee because I just got this thing done and I like it so much and stuff. I'm not like this person that some people he actually went up. Jello started Dead Kennedys because he felt so bad about the state of the world. No. no, sorry, I did it to I did it to act up and sabotage and do pranks. And for some people, maybe that in, ended after middle school, but not a lot of us, not okay. even close. I mean, my favorite prank and my favorite art statement of the last year or more was those TikTok kids who got Trump Z and uh, Parscal and the rest of them thinking a million people were going to show up in Tulsa to worship him and stuff. And then hardly anybody <laughs> did. You know, I thought that was amazing. I mean, that look of Trump when he got back to Washington and you got a picture of his tie. He looks all bedraggled and bummed out and wiped out and sweaty and everything else. I mean, that, that's just too good. Jello's love for political pranksterism led to one of the most notorious pranks in the history of punk rock, when in 1979, he ran for mayor of San Francisco against Dianne Feinstein. One candidate who took his campaign to the streets today in a way that only he can. Jello Biafra, the lead singer in the punk rock group The Dead Kennedys, he held a news conference at City Hall. He then went on to uh, do what he calls shaking babies and kissing hands. Hello, I'm Jello Biafra. I'm running for mayor. The way she goes. There goes the bag lady vote. The candidate, who won't tell his born name, would be a joke, except he's too smart. Oh, I'm going for me. I'm one of the so-called little candidates. I want to ban cars from the city, make the cops run for re-election, roll back rents, legalize squatting and vacant buildings. Whose politics are sort of left and sort of activist. His point, the town's in trouble and the big interests who got us in won't get us out. And he's using humor to make his point play. There was one other plank in his platform of having all businessmen in the downtown area wear clown suits. Well, I think if you look around, you'll find that my candidacy is no more of a joke and no less of a joke than anyone else running you care to name. I'm not running on my, um, my qualifications of 20 years in government, 20 years of this. I'm running on my views. And some of the views, which uh, you'll probably get to in a minute, are um, tongue-in-cheek as such, mm -hmm. but there are um, very serious feelings behind them. What is behind your candidacy, then? Well, what's behind my candidacy is... Um, a dissatisfaction with the, the announced candidates before the uh, filing deadline. I'd only heard of three, Diane Feinstein, Quentin Kopp, and David Scott, all of whom seem to be presenting a um, pro-business, pro-conservative point of view. I will solve all of San Francisco's problems, whether San Francisco likes it or not. And if you're skeptical, remember that stranger things than Jello Biafra have happened to San Francisco. As his motto says, there's always room for Jello. Even back when the San Francisco police were stalking and beating up punk punks, back when Diane Feinstein right. was mayor, the Margaret Thatcher of San Francisco, the Wicked Witch of the West. But anyway, um, she's way nastier than people think she is now. His half-serious run for mayor had some very serious consequences for Jello, as his candidacy forced an expensive runoff between the other two candidates, including Dianne Feinstein, 
who was bitter enough about the extra work he put her through to change eligibility laws in California and, through some discreet work behind the scenes, charged Jello and seven others with obscenity for the contents of the album Frankenchrist. This would turn into one of the biggest and most important First Amendment cases in music history. What they're trying to do also, the prosecution here, is set the kind of legal precedent where it isn't just the -the over-the-counter seller who can be prosecuted for obscenity or what they call harmful matter here, that you can go after anybody. The guy who sat in the office and had nothing to do with the recording of the record. They're trying to put him on trial. They tried to bust the owner of the record pressing plant that stamped out the vinyl. He was dismissed for lack of evidence, as were three other defendants, but we're still here. And so what they hope to accomplish is to set the kind of ugly chain of precedence where even if you walk out and get coffee for the director of a movie that someone else puts an X-rating on later on, you could be prosecuted for the whole movie. Guilty by association? Yes, in other words, guilt by association to the point where people won't want to associate to create good art. They'll be scared, and for good reason. I heard that it's more difficult now or almost impossible to get dead Kennedy records in stores. Well, keep in mind they did not prosecute the actual record store that sold the record to the kid. They made a deal with the store. You won't get prosecuted if you withdraw dead Kennedys from their shelves. They withdrew every album dead Kennedys had ever made. This embroiled Jello in a three to four year court case that effectively ended the Dead Kennedys, even though they were acquitted on all charges. If you want to hear about this, I'd highly recommend Jello's spoken word album, High Priest of Harmful Matter, or Tales from the Trial, where he recounts the entire saga with incredible wit and humor. Here's an excerpt of him describing the police raid on his house. Again, to find an album. They could have just picked up at a store. April 15th, 1986, tax day. And what a tax day it was. I was up in the uh, attic part of this flat I used to rent. I used to go up the stairs and sleep up there and everything. And I heard this tromping up the stairs. Who could that be? Dun, 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 dun. We're police officers. Dun, 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 dun. What are you doing in my house? Dun da da dun da dun da da. You are under suspicion of trafficking in harmful matter. Harmful matter? What's that? Can you imagine any matter more harmful than finding a cop in your bedroom? And then going on down the stairs into the main part of the place and finding it's not just one cop, not just two cops, not just three cops, not just four, not just five. Nine cops were busy tearing my whole flat to pieces. I felt like it was a DEA drug raid or something. So I find out that what it takes nine cops to tear my whole house apart to find the booty, the harmful matter, is a record album. Frankenchrist by my old band Dead Kennedys. And inside that record album was a painting by Swiss surrealist master H.R. Giger, the guy who won the Oscar for designing the set to Alien and designed the monsters. And he's better known in Europe than he is here. He's primarily a gallery artist, but he's designed album covers for uh, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, the Brain Salad Surgery cover, Cuckoo by Deborah Harry. He's done one for Magma, done one for... Celtic Frost. I mean, he's a recognized 
master, but they really wanted his ass. I mean, one of the, one of the L.A. guys was going, where's the guy who did this painting? Where is he? Where is he? He's in Switzerland. <laughs> I mean, I was scared for my life. Then in comes one of the San Francisco vice narcs. He's got his Elliot Ness trench coat on and his pinstripes, the whole deal. Kind of an alarmed look on his face, so he comes in. What are all those pictures of missing milk carton kids doing on your kitchen wall? Do you know where they are? <laughs> and by that time, they'd also raided the alternative tentacles and Mordam Records, a little warehouse office space we had, and a couple of the cops were holding up DOA t-shirts, showing themselves off, and... One of them found the 4x6 chrome slide of the Giger painting we'd gotten from his agent in Switzerland. Uh, All right, we got it! This is the smoking gun! We've got it! We've got it! We've got him now! Ah, ha, ha, ha. Forgot to take it with him. <laughs> Although exonerated, the court case bankrupted Jello and his label. So he started doing these speaking engagements at college campuses and other places to make money. But then that became just another outlet for his activism, where he coined the rallying cry for a new generation of activists, don't fight the media, become the media. A pre-internet idea that has now come to define our times. I first used that line in the die for oil sucker piece I mm -hmm. did during the Gulf War, which was considered gutsy and dangerous and kind of inviting being threatened and worse at the time because, you know, the, you know, corporate McMedia had people so bullied on that one. Margot Kidder, the late actress, um, she was one of the few celebrities who came out against the Gulf War straight away, and she was just vilified for it. She didn't have much of a career after that. I mean, she had some offstage issues, too, but not to the mm -hmm, point mm -hmm. where, you know, if they give Lindsay Lohan and Britney Spears chance after chance after chance, you know, you know, somebody shouldn't just be blackballed and sent to Kaepernick land just because they came out against the Gulf War. And a lot of the musicians didn't either at the time and stuff. So somebody had to do something. And even when like Sub Pop and Amphetamine Reptile and the grunge singles were all the rage and selling in quantities that nobody on punk had ever seen before, the Die For All Suckle Sucker singles sold as much as the Mud Honey ones did. Wow. You know, okay. people finally knew they weren't alone. Mm. And the sleeve deliberately had a fold out, you know, crass style poster you could then take to a demonstration and hold up too. I was stressing not just become the media, but, um, and that means one-on-one, eye-to-eye, not blogging to people who agree with you and calling it a day, you know, and have all your little virtual friends that you've never actually met to hang in your virtual friend trophy room and stuff. You know, I'm not down mm -hmm. with that, but mm -hmm. um, there's different ways to become the media. But one of the main things with what's going on now, and I even said, God, now 20 years ago, maybe even 25, that no one should be able to graduate from high school unless they pass a class on media literacy. But of course, there's a mountain of reasons that they don't teach media literacy in schools 
And it's not just kids who need this. We can teach it to other people ourselves, people older than us, people younger than us. I mean, if they, if we all see something that's clearly, you know, bullshit and not just the obvious ones, like without a Trump's mouth and stuff on corporate McNews or in ads or whatever, point it out to people and get them to laugh at it. Because once they kind of see through that, the looking class breaks and they're never quite the same again mm-hmm. up here, you know, and they get more questioning in a good way. Where do you stand right now? You know, how are you? <laughs> I'm fighting it too, buddy. I really am. Mm-hmm. And the best I can do is just, you know, take that motherfuckers. Here's this album that doesn't think much of you. Mm-hmm. And right when people are not doing much with that, um, I'm not pulling any punches. I mean, I've been such a bad boy for so long. And I did see my student files right after I left high school. And they had me as a bad seed, even in first grade. And I thought the teacher liked me. That was the last year I liked school. What happened? <laughs> John Greenway happened. That was what happened. But, uh, but that was only in the last third of the year. But, but anyway, so I just, you know, got the attitude even back when the San Francisco police were stalking and beating up punk punks back when Diane Feinstein was mayor, one of the known, known most violent and punk obsessed cops on the force turned out he, he gave another woman a ride to my house in his car after she had reported being raped. And he was the cop who responded to the call and stuff, perhaps because he kind of got off on that sort of thing. I don't know. She, he said to take her anywhere she wanted. So she came to my house and she was friends with everybody who lived there and stuff. And he's, oh, what do you know? Jello Biafra's house. Mm-hmm. So um, that can be scary. You know, after Die for Oil Sucker and some of the other things I was saying on the Spoken Word show about the October surprise, the deal with Iran to keep the hostages over there till um, Jimmy Carter lost and Reagan got in. And uh, the drug running associated with the Contras that Oliver North was involved in and whatnot. You know, there started to be some weird stuff going on. I even saw a guy in a gray suit with mirror shades standing across the street from my house just looking at me one day and things. Mm -hmm. But I thought, you know, it's too late to fake a conversion to fundamentalism and say I'm a good boy now on or, or, or pretend I've turned into Ted Nugent or, or um, Toby Keith or something like that. I've been such a bad boy for so long. I might as well just keep getting worse <laughs> and do as much damage as I possibly can without being a jerk about it. Because in a way, the whole pyramid of my art and the different areas I've been involved in is in one intentionally one big prank against corporate society. And I'm also very grateful that enough people have been interested in dead Kennedy's music, even now and stuff, you know, I'm very grateful for that. And that even though it's only a fraction of those people are interested in anything new from me for some lemming like reason, but, uh, we only want the old stuff. Mm. You know, I'm not the only person that had a problem with that. Hey, Keith, how about a new Circle Jerks album? Yeah, we just made a new <laughs> album. Oh, I only want to hear groups. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I guess every generation, unless they make an effort not to be, becomes set in their ways. 
Jello's status as the bishop of punk rock is secure. It's led to dozens and dozens of new music opportunities, and he hasn't stopped creating for a second. In fact, this interview was shoehorned into a mixing session he was doing on his most recent album, Tea Party Revenge Porn, by his latest band, Jello Biafra and the Guantanamo School of Medicine. <laughs> Lord. <laughs> and though he may be struggling, as we all are, with these tumultuous times, he hasn't lost his sense of humor. Behold, some of the names of some of the, just a few of the songs that he's written in the past 10 years. Uh, Prairie Home Invasion. <laughs> uh, are You Drinking With Me, Jesus? Uh, nostalgia for an age that never existed. She's very on the nose. Hamlet Chicken Plant Disaster? That's amazing. To the tune of Nebraska by Bruce Springsteen, for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) And this is is one of my favorites. Full Metal (laughs) Jackoff, which is about cooking crack in a windowless van as it circles the D.C. Beltway. Uh, The lighter side of global terrorism. Enchanted Thought Fist. (laughs) Sieg Howdy, like Sieg Heil, but Sieg Howdy. The Audacity of Hype, uh, a slightly, not anti-Obama thing. He's critical of left and right. Uh, he's Green Party, if anything. He ran for president in 2000. Uh, so he's Green Party, if anything. Strength Through Shopping, which is, I think, uh, the American anthem. Werewolves of Wall Street. Hollywood Goof Disease. What's this next one? White people and the damage done. <laughs> it's gay. That's a little on the nose. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of these are on the nose. You know, I, I, know, I never said Jello was subtle. Uh, uh, here's a simple one. Crapture. <laughs> uh, Tea Party Revenge Porn, you've already mentioned. Dot Com, Monte Carlo, and Satan's Comb Over. Those are fantastic titles. Right? This is a, this is a mind that is just seems to be racing at all times and I'm just I'm just so impressed I've always have been I just that first of all his ability to recall anything and everything he knows the, like have you noticed whenever I've seen interviews with him and certainly when all interviewing him he's never at a loss for a date or a name it's always right there yeah. he never has to um uh who is it he's got it all in his head he lives with this stuff <laughs> every second of the day i kept thinking how can i bottle that right energy <laughs> it's kind of amazing but really really what stands out to me is it, it's easy for us to hear um activists people who are really 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 engaged and really have their hearts in it it's easy to assume that some of the claims that they make about power is conspiratorial. Mm-hmm. It starts to sound off; the, it can sound off the wall. But, but to see somebody step into that arena and actually make that uh, that kind of, to 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 hang themselves on that particular cross mm-hmm. is not only impressive and eye-opening, but it will probably go down as one of the more important parts of his biography even though it led to the end of the dead kennedys it it was a very um it's a very important moment i think what's part and parcel to that is his integrity 
Mm-hmm. And I don't want to get into it, but there's a you know kind of a, a rift between the ex-members of the Dead Kennedys because uh, some commercial wanted to pay you know an insane amount of money to the rights to some Dead Kennedy song, and you know Biafra refused. Uh, that's hard to do when you know that like you have a record label that's just always his record label, Alternative Tentacles, which is always, I think, kind of just skirting on the edge of barely breaking even. Right. And then somebody offers you a giant payday, and just on principle, you say no. Yeah. Um, I think he's an exceptionally principled uh, dude and hasn't lost any fire somehow mm. in all these years. Having the opportunity to sit down you know, on a Zoom call and talk to my... Uh, childhood hero and I thought he had to get back to his recording session I mean I I interrupted his recording session I mean like I waited on the zoom call for like 10 minutes while I listened to him mixing uh, some song on uh, uh, Tea Party Revenge Porn and then he came and he finally got on he's like sorry about that I just want to wrap that up I'm like okay you're really in the middle of something here so I don't want to keep you so I told him these interviews usually go an hour and a half he went on for about three hours don't you have a, how about that record you're working on, Jello? Shouldn't you get back to that? <laughs> but yeah, full commitment. Full commitment to whatever he's doing at the time and limitless energy somehow. Well, that's considering that he was cutting uh, Tea Party Revenge Porn while we we're doing this. Do you think he might let us uh, play that as our out- outro? Yeah, I think he will. <laughs> right. And that's, and that's what I'm going to do right now. Well is produced, recorded, and edited by Anson Mount and me, Brandon Edgems. Special thanks to Jello Biafra for being Jello Biafra and for being our guest. Our theme music is written and performed by Jonathan Meyberg. If you take anything away from this episode, it's this. There are real things in this world to be angry about, but don't let it spoil your fun. I'll let Jello play us out. Have a great week.